2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And before I read, I do want to provide a little bit of context for this passage. Prior to Paul's, the Apostle Paul's writing of this book, 2 Corinthians, his relationship with the church in Corinth had been a struggle. 1 Corinthians is basically like the longest rebuke in all of scripture. It is just like, hey, this is something you're doing wrong. Here's another thing that you're doing wrong. Oh, by the way, regarding communion, I have nothing good to say about you because you do more harm than good when you get together. I mean, it's just one after another. Paul is like, you guys are missing it. And so after that letter, the church in Corinth wasn't too pumped uh, on, on Paul. Um, and so Paul visits Corinth and he refers to his visit as a painful visit. Um, we don't have the details of what went down in that visit, but uh, uh, we have some record of it in uh, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verse 1, where he refers to it as a, as a painful visit. And then he follows up his painful visit with what uh, people have called throughout church history a severe letter. So if the first rebuke, the you know, all of 1 Corinthians wasn't enough, then there's this painful visit followed by a severe letter that we don't have preserved for us in Scripture. We don't know the details of that letter. But what we do know from 2 Corinthians is that it grieved the Corinthians uh, in a way that produced repentance. It was this godly grief that produced repentance and reconciliation. And so because of this relational context, 2 Corinthians is peppered with some of these tangents relating to Paul's relationship with the, the, the church, re- reflecting kind of the drama of this relationship. And so we'll see one of those tangents in our text. It is important for the overall message of 2 Corinthians, but we're kind of parachuting, dropping into this text where we're at, and we're focusing on what Paul is saying about God's mission of reconciliation. So in light of that, um, we can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this 
is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, Scripture says, that it divides even bone and marrow, that you, through your word, can penetrate our hearts. You can break past the walls that we build up. You can break through the excuses that we make, Lord. You can overcome the sin in our lives, the distractions and confusion in our mind, and through your word, like like piercing through the silence, Lord, we can hear your voice speaking to your people and we can hear in your word you speaking to us today. And God, as we, as we look at so much scripture today, not just this passage, but others, Lord, we pray, God, that we would hear not my voice, but the voice of our Savior speaking to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in your word. We pray, God, that you would empower us to delight in your word, to not only hear your word, but to obey your word, to live in in light of the truth of your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak. We pray that you would teach us today, that we would hear from you today, and that we would rejoice together that you've not left us alone, but are with us, guiding us, empowering us, reconciling us to God and to one another. And Lord, we pray that we would experience that power of your reconciliation in this place, God. God, above all else, would you give us a vision of who you are, Lord? Would you give us a vision of your glory, your holiness, Lord, your love for your people today? pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our passage begins with one of the most uncomfortable phrases in all of the Bible. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not a popular idea today. We don't like talking about it. We don't even quite know all the time if we understand it. But we know one thing, it makes us uncomfortable. We've grown so accustomed to talking about the love of the Lord. We talk about the grace of God. We talk about the compassion of Jesus. But we often neglect the ideas of the justice of God, the holiness of God, or the wrath of God. And because of this Uh, occasional imbalance, we can be allergic to the idea that God is one who should be feared. Even as Christians, maybe you're here and you are uncomfortable with this idea of the fear of the Lord. Many of us don't know what to do with this. 
We don't know how to understand the fear of the Lord, but it's all over the Bible. This idea of the fear of the Lord. And it's not, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. It's a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. So how are we to understand this? See, many people try to explain away this idea of the fear of the Lord by saying that it refers to reverence. That the fear of the Lord is simply referring to reverence for the Lord. But that's not what it says. In fact, our word in this passage in the original language is phobos, which is where we get the word phobia as in arachnophobia, which we all know means a reverence for spiders. <laughs> or claustrophobia. Those of you who are claustrophobic, such a, such a sincere reverence for enclosed spaces. It's not what it means. That's not what it says. It means fear. It means fear, and it's all over the Bible. Who can forget Isaiah's experience? In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another, and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the Lord. Isaiah is a righteous man. He's a prophet of God. He sees the Lord and his first response is, I'm dead. I've seen the Lord. I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm destroyed. I've, he's, he comes face to face with God and he sees his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The Apostle Peter has a similar experience in one of his first interactions with Jesus. After the miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, Peter realizes that he's undeserving of the Lord's presence. And in Luke 5 verse 8, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Recognizing who Jesus is, recognizing who he comes from, says, I can't be in your presence, God. I can't be in your presence, Jesus. I am a sinful man. What are we missing today that we don't think that God is one who should be feared? How are we misunderstanding this? What's, what's the problem? What's the breakdown? Why should we fear the Lord? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, in the immediate context to our passage, in verse 10, Paul talks about his desire to please God in all things because, quote, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
And then it picks up in verse 11. Therefore, because we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, therefore, knowing this fear, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So the reason Paul says that he has this fear of the Lord, the reason that Paul says that we should have this fear of the Lord is because one day you will stand before God and be judged. One day I will stand before God and be judged. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul, uh, I love Paul. I love the Apostle Paul. He's a little dramatic, right? So Paul, this can't be as severe as you are saying, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say that he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world? Sure did. But that was referring to his first coming. He talks about what will happen when he returns. This is Jesus' words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That same seat, the judgment seat, the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skipping ahead, then he will say to those on his left, this is Jesus talking, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Even the Apostle John. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple, who probably knows more about the love of God than any of us in this room, than anyone who penned Scripture would say in the book of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, then I saw a great white throne. Again, same seat. The judgment seat of Christ. And him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Talk about the fear of the Lord. The earth and the sky flee from the holiness, the power, the, the, the wonder of the one on the throne. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which, was, uh, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Why should we fear the Lord? Why does Paul fear the Lord? Why does he encourage us to know this fear of the Lord? Because of sin. Because of sin and because sin and sinners will be judged. He knows that we will all stand before God and be judged. And Paul says that the rightful response, like Isaiah's response, like Peter's response, like anyone else who had had a vision of the Lord, they fall as though dead. The reason that God comes to people most often and says, fear not, is because they're afraid. 
They see an angel of the Lord. They're afraid. Fear not. God would eventually comfort Isaiah after his vision that he saw. And he would cleanse Isaiah. He would atone, say his sin was atoned for. And so throughout throughout history, throughout the history of of God's people, people have, have struggled with this idea of judgment, but for different reasons. It's not always the same reason. See, today we struggle with the idea that God would cast people away from his presence. We struggle with the idea that a loving God would condemn someone to hell. We read that Revelation passage and we're like, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I've been told about. The Jesus who loves me with like the lambs in his arms and and children running to him. And this is this is a this is a powerful picture of Jesus on his throne judging. But that wasn't the struggle that the ancient Israelites had with the concept of judgment. It wasn't that they struggled with the idea that God would cast anyone away from his presence. They struggled with the idea that God would invite anyone into his presence. See, we, we struggle with these ideas of why bad things happen to good people. The Israelites struggled with why good things happen to anybody. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9 say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, sorry, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, chances are, if you've ever cited this passage, it was to try to understand a difficult situation you were going through or that someone in your life was going through. We, we, we don't understand. God's ways are, are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're, they're higher than ours. He has a higher purpose in this. But the context of this passage is Isaiah saying, God, why do you save us? Why do you have grace on us? Why, why do you forgive the wicked person who turns from their wickedness? He does not understand the compassion of God, that that God would judge them and forgive them. That's what they wrestled with. See, today we assume God's forgiveness. We assume it. We assume God's love. God is love. This is true. The word of God does not contradict itself. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we understand these things? Today we assume God's forgiveness, but Israel, for Israel, the condition of all humanity was that they were alienated from God, estranged from God. And so it's wrong for us to think that we all live in this, like we all have this somewhat like friendly relationship with God, but God is just like sitting in heaven eager that someday we would want to become like more than friends, right? Like, like God loves you and you're, you're kind of, you're okay with God, but God's just wanting you to like really be okay with him. Like wanting to like, like him, like him. That's not the situation. According to, to scriptures, apart from, from Jesus, we are alienated from God. We're estranged from God. Even more, Romans 5.10 says that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. 
at war with God, building kingdoms in rebellion against God and rivaling God's purposes in the world. And so Paul agrees with the rest of scripture when he says that we're going to stand before God and give an account. And this is the reality, uh, the reality of this judgment is what compels Paul to persuade everyone to be reconciled. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then he goes into this tangent about his relationship with the Corinthian church. And then later on, you find out what he's trying to persuade them of. He says, be reconciled to God. Knowing that we're going to stand before God and give an account knowing that in our sin, no one can stand before God and give an account, Paul persuades others, be reconciled to God. See, this is not just Paul's mission. This is what the Bible is all about. The Bible is about God's mission of reconciliation. The story of scripture is about how God made us to live in intimacy with him, but we threw it all away. We rebelled against him in the garden of Eden and were expelled from his presence. And God time and time again does not give up on you, doesn't give up on us, but he time and time again pursues reconciliation. He goes after you. He loves you. He desires you to return to him. The whole story of scripture is about God trying to reconcile fallen humanity with himself. Now, when we think about the, 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 the separation that sin brings, right? When we think about it in terms of the Garden of Eden, that we think of it spatially, right? There's a place where we can be in God's presence, but sin comes and they're separated from God. And so they're kicked out of the garden. And so there's this spatial separation, right? Like, like uh, two lovers living in a long distance relationship. But that's not the separation that sin brings, Think of it more in terms of two lovers separated by an affair. You can be right next to each other and yet worlds apart. The separation that sin brings between humanity and God is not just this spatial separation that he's up in heaven and we're here on earth. The separation that sin brings is a holistic separation. It is, it's, it encompasses everything that we are just so far away dwelling in our sin and needing to be reconciled to God. We're alienated from him. We're estranged from him and we're in need of reconciliation. Now to be reconciled to someone is to coexist in harmony with that person. Okay, to coexist in mutual joy and peace, but in our sinful human condition, there is no harmony with God. It's only dissonance. For those of you who are musicians, You know what it means to sing in harmony. You're not singing the exact same notes, but you're singing something that, or playing something that brings greater beauty and a a fullness to the beauty of the song. In our sin, there's no harmony with what God is doing. In our sin, it's only dissonance. The 
But God has a plan. Hear me, church. God has a plan. God has a mission. Okay, we don't often all the time in our world think about God's mission, that God is actively pursuing something. He has a goal. He has a destination. He has something that he is working toward. He has something that he wants us, his church, working toward. God has a plan. God has a mission to reconcile all things to himself. But if we're ever going to understand that that the mission of the church, the mission that he is calling us to, we need to understand it in light of his mission. What God is doing, what God has done to rescue people from our estrangement from God and to bring us back into intimacy with God. And it began with one man. God's mission of reconciliation began with Abraham. He called Abraham. He blessed Abraham. And he said, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to every family of the earth. After the Tower of Babel, which we studied just a few weeks ago when we concluded our series on Genesis 1 through 11, after the Tower of Babel, when everyone was scattered, all the families of the earth were scattered over the face of the earth, God calls one man and says, through your family, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to get all of the families back, all of the peoples of the earth. I am going to get them back and I'm going to do it by blessing your socks off. So when people see how blessed you are, they will come to receive the blessing in my presence. And it began, his mission of reconciliation began with Abraham. And then Abraham's family grew and became the nation of Israel. And God entered covenant into a covenant with the nation of Israel. And a covenant is a type of reconciliation. It's a, it's a relationship based on the promises of God, that God was going to promise to be their God and that they would be his people. And he, he gave them a way for their sin to be covered so that they could enter into his presence in the temple Again, And so by these sacrifices and their meticulous uh, legal obedience, they were allowed to draw near to God in the temple and worship God in the temple. But only uh, in, in the temple, there was this veil, right, that separated the people from the presence of God. And the veil was, was a, not only just a physical barrier, but it was a physical reminder that even though God draws me near, I'm, I'm kept out there. I can't actually go into his presence. There was only one person, one time of the year, one day out of the year that could actually go beyond the veil. The high priest on the day of atonement was allowed to go beyond the veil to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel, but only first after making sacrifices for himself. There was restrictions to God's presence. And if anyone entered into beyond the veil in an un uh, uh, sanctioned manner, it, it was death. They were killed. Does that sound like reconciliation? Does that sound like harmony? They're still waiting for something. They're still waiting for the reconciliation that was promised. And the problem was, is that Israel began to trust in the sacrifices rather than trust in the Lord who gave them a way to cover their sins. 
And so they're living this life of rebellion. They're living this life of idolatry. They're going after false gods. They're pursuing all kinds of sin. And they're coming to the temple, making their sacrifices and going, we're all good. We can live however we please. We can live however we want because we've got these sacrifices as long as we keep, you know, killing the bulls and killing the sheep and, 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 and doing all that. We can live however we want. And they forgot that their relationship with God that he had given them was a privilege. And they took it for granted. So the prophet Isaiah again speaks about how even though Israel was God's covenant people, their sin continued to alienate them from God. Even though they were his people, they cried out to him and it was as though he wasn't even listening. And we know that that's not true, that God wasn't listening. But look at Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. They were accusing God. They were accusing God. You're powerless, he's powerless to save us in our times of trouble. He, he, he must not hear our prayers. And God says, it's not that the Lord's hand is shortened that he cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So wrapped up in their sin, trusting in the sacrifices rather than trusting in the Lord that in their time of trouble, they call out to God and he feels distant. You who are here, who know the reconciliation of God, know the goodness of Jesus, know the salvation that God brings his people. You ever feel distant from God? You ever realize that part of that reason is your own sin? Reconciled to God by grace through the blood of Jesus. And yet feeling distant, feeling separate, feeling put out because of the sin in our lives that we're refusing to deal with. Trusting in the sacrifices, trusting in the process, trusting in the works, but not trusting in the one who laid his life down for you not just to forgive you of your sin, but to transform you, to change your life, to produce righteousness. We, like Israel, need true reconciliation. We don't just need to add good works to our lives to overcome the sin in our lives, to outweigh the sin in our lives. We need True reconciliation. And this is the good news is because it's the exact thing that Jesus provides for you. True reconciliation. Let's jump back to the text, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against him. In our sin, we are alienated from God. But on the cross, Jesus took the penalty of your sin, took the separation that your sin deserves in your place, took the judgment that your sin deserves. It has fallen upon Jesus, so it will not fall upon you. So that you could experience the intimacy and the blessing that he deserves. See, the, the sin in our lives deserves judgment. Jesus took that judgment. The righteousness of Jesus' life deserves intimacy with the Father and blessing. And as he took your judgment, he has given you the blessing. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It says that Jesus became sin so that God could pour out his wrath on sin by pouring out his wrath on Jesus so he would not have to pour out his wrath on you. Isaiah anticipates this when he says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Speaking of our estrangement, our alienation from God, all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him. Speaking of the Messiah who was to come, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this does not mean that we will not be judged. Paul says we will all stand before God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This does not mean that you will not be judged. It just means the verdict has changed. We will stand before God, clothed in Christ's righteousness, through faith in him, and God will open the books, as Revelation says, and we will, be, be, we will have to give an account for all that was done in the body, as, Christ, as, as Paul says, whether good or evil. And yet, the declaration at the end of that, for those whose names are written in the book of life, is well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. We will be judged, but through faith in Christ, the judgment is this, righteous. Righteous. Now think about your life. Heck, think about last week. Chances are there's something in your life or in the last week that seems to stand in contradiction of the declaration of righteousness. But if your faith is in Jesus, that is exactly what the verdict is. Righteous. Because his righteousness has been given to you in the same way that your sin has been given 
to him. We will be judged, but we will be judged righteous. So now, when we see Christ sitting on the, the, the great white throne judgment, when we see him sitting in the judgment seat, we don't have to be afraid, but Hebrews says that we can approach with boldness. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We can actually come to Christ rejoicing. So let me tell you what that means. That means that because if your faith is in Jesus, that you will sin. You will still sin. You will still mess up. You'll, 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 you'll say you know, sinful things. You'll think sinful things. You'll do sinful things. And what this means is that you don't need to fear the presence of God. You can actually rejoice in the presence of God and run to the presence of God with confidence that you will be heard, that you will be forgiven, that you will find grace in your time of need. So often when, if you were to poll people on why they go to church on, on specific Sundays, and ask them oftentimes why they didn't attend church one Sunday. It's because of something that happened in that week. They don't feel worthy. And that's a lie. Well, it's true. You're not worthy, but it's a lie that you have to stay away. It's because of Christ, because he has made reconciliation, because we now live in harmony with God. We now live, we coexist in this, this place of peace and joy with God, that when we sin, we don't run away from him, we run to him. Knowing, where do I go with this sin? I'm going to go to Jesus. Because I know with him, I will find forgiveness. I know with him, I will find grace. I know that with him, with the one who has died for me, that this sin that I carry with me is as good as dead. And in his presence, we find grace. We find peace. We find forgiveness. Now look, before we can talk about the church's mission as a ministry of reconciliation, proclaiming this good news. We have to talk about how we in this room need to be reconciled. We can't proclaim reconciliation if we're not walking in reconciliation. We can't walk in reconciliation if we've not actually been reconciled. This is beautiful that this passage is coming from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knows what it's like to be reconciled. He knows what it's like to think he was reconciled. So the Apostle Paul was a religious leader, up and coming. Like people were super pumped on what this dude was going to do. He was more educated, more respected than any other uh, Pharisee of his age. And he was pretty sure he was going to do some awesome stuff. If anyone in Israel was reconciled to God, it was Paul. 
He, told, he talked about his life before Jesus, a righteousness according to the law. Flat out says he was blameless. He's like, I know what righteousness is. I lived righteousness. I was, I was doing all of the righteous stuff. If anyone was living in reconciliation, it was, it was Paul. So much so that he saw the ministry of the church that was starting to come alive after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after he poured out his spirit on the church, Paul looked at that and saw that as misleading people. And so he wasn't going to have it. He was going to take those folks out. Paul starts rallying and, 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 and uh, uh, arresting Christians and having them murdered because he saw the church as distracting from obedience to the law a righteousness that comes from the law. And so he was going to make sure that Israel stayed reconciled. Don't go after this Jesus guy. Don't listen to what the church is telling you. We're going to shut them up and shut them out because we need to remain reconciled. He believed that he was living in harmony with God, that God wanted him to murder Christians because they were confusing Israel. And then one day, he's on the road to Damascus to arrest and murder more Christians. And Jesus shows up. And Paul hits the deck. Falls on his face in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because he knew he was not reconciled. Jesus said, Saul, which was his name before his conversion, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard to kick against the goads. It is hard to to ignore. It is hard to fight against what I am doing in your life. Why do you resist me? Why do you persecute me? Why are you against me? And he hits the deck, face in the dirt. And he puts his faith in Jesus that day and he experiences true reconciliation. This is what compels Paul. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade anyone who will listen. Knowing the the reconciliation we need and experiencing that reconciliation, we persuade anyone who will listen to be reconciled. Many of us are like Paul, assuming reconciliation because of maybe it's all the good that we do. Maybe you've got a a list of righteous things in your life, or maybe you were raised in the church and you're like, hey, my family's Christian. I'm Christian. I know about Jesus. I know he died for my sins. I'm good to go, right? Reconciled. But if you were to point to something in your life that proved your reconciliation to yourself and to others, if I were to ask you, how do you know that you are reconciled? If you point to anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you might actually, like Paul, be in opposition to the reconciliation that God's actually trying to do for you. You're still trying to do it yourself. You're still trying to accomplish it. 
for yourself, like Paul was. We actually resist the work of God when we try to make ourselves acceptable to God apart from grace. See, this is the thing about this passage that gets me. That 2 Corinthians is written to Christians. The introduction to 2 Corinthians says that it is written to the church of God that is in Corinth. And then in chapter 5, verse 20, it says, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians is written to Christians. So maybe you're sitting there and you're like, Adam doesn't know where he is. Doesn't he know he's preaching to the choir? So did, so did Paul. Paul's preaching to the choir. He's preaching to Christians. And he says, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Apparently, Paul believed that something was going on in the church that put the people at risk of abandoning the faith that they had professed. He's going to go on in chapter 6 to warn them that it's possible to receive the grace of God in vain. Listen to this. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. This marvelous gift of God's grace is reconciliation and salvation. He says, don't receive that news, rejoice in it, and then prevent it from changing you. Don't hear that reconciliation with God, that living in harmony, this coexistence of mutual joy and peace with God is possible because Jesus laid his life down for you and you go, that's amazing. I'm going to live however I want and forget all about what Jesus has done for me. He says, don't receive this marvelous gift and then ignore it. So that means that God's mission of reconciliation is more than just forgiving sin, but transforming the sinner. God wants to change you. He just want to forgive you. He forgives you, but then he changes you. He transforms you. He doesn't just forgive you of your sin, but then he roots sin out of your life and, and, and transforms you and makes you righteous. Not just declares you righteous, but causes you to become and to live like what he has already made you to be. Righteous. And receiving his grace in vain is to receive the message of forgiveness, but deny the power of forgiveness. It's claiming the forgiveness of sins, but not repenting of sin. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And, and in it, toward the beginning, he talks about this, this cheap grace that prevails in his culture. And he was writing uh, in the 30s um, in Nazi Germany as the Third Reich was, was starting to, uh, to, to build up steam. And he talked about the church and he said, they're just dancing around in cheap grace. Just preaching forgiveness without repentance. Preaching baptism without church discipline. 
says, preaching, preaching grace without the cross. How do you have grace without the cross? It says we're just lying to ourselves. Receiving the marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignoring it. Can we be reconciled to God and yet not live in harmony with God? Can we be reconciled to God and live outside of that reconciliation? Think about a marriage again. I think the marriage context gives a, 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 a good a good context to understand this. When sin enters a marriage, a husband and wife must pursue reconciliation. They can't just sweep it under the rug. They can't just pretend like nothing happened. If, it do, if they do, it's just going to continue to pull them further and further and further apart. You have to confess. You have to repent. You have to turn from that sin. And you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you have to forgive. There needs to be forgiveness. And if you're reconciled, it doesn't mean that you can just continue to sin against your spouse because after all, like, hey, we're reconciled, we're married, we can do what we want. No. That's awful. That's not love. Look at verses 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A person who has been reconciled to God no longer lives for themselves. Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus is not fire insurance so that we can live however we want and not fear hell. Jesus reconciles us to God so that we would live in light of that reconciliation and honor him in the way that we live. In another place, Colossians 1, 19 through 23 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, speaking of Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, this is you, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. We have been reconciled and we will be blameless on the day of judgment if we continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. See, the work of reconciliation is God's work in Christ for us, but we must still receive it and we must still live in light of it. Paul commands the Corinthian church to be reconciled. Reality Carpinteria, be reconciled to God. Be Reconciled. Now, I want to invite the, the worship team up, and I want, to, I want to close with this. It's probably stupid to close with a grammar lesson, but I think it's important. I'm going to get a little nerdy for a second. Okay, this phrase, be reconciled. 
is a passive imperative verb. And for those of you who remember your English classes, you might remember that an imperative is a command. It is a command to do something, right? But this is a passive command, which means we are not the active one doing the command. We are the one receiving what is being done. Okay, so when Paul says, be reconciled, when I say to you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to him. It is a command not to do something, but to receive something, to receive what has been done for you. This means that reconciliation is not something that you can make happen. Okay, reconciliation is something that Jesus makes happen. He presents you with forgiveness and you receive forgiveness by trusting in him. He is the initiator. He is the power for reconciliation, but you still have a say in the matter. Reconciliation is being offered you today and you can turn away from it or you can receive it. Think about it as a family sitting down for a meal that has been generously provided for them. Everyone is being offered the meal, but only the children that eat get fed. It is given to you. There is a banquet prepared before you today, a banquet of forgiveness, a banquet of of grace, a feast in God's presence. You know, we come here every Sunday and we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. We'll have it available for you. It's this, it's this small piece of bread and a little juice. It is a small meal. But it is a picture of the banquet being provided for you. It's a picture of the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, so that your judgment can be removed from you. That judgment of sinner removed. And the judgment that God gives to Jesus, righteous, holy, blameless, perfect, child, son of God, the righteousness of God can be given to you. And so we are going to worship. We're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to feast in his presence. A little bit of bread, a little bit of juice. And if you've trusted In Christ, if you've believed on the gospel for the salvation from your sins, then we can come and we can take the bread and the cup and remember that the judgment you deserve is no longer yours. You have been reconciled to God. And we can rejoice together, but we leave this place not forgetting the meal that we just ate not forgetting the good news we just heard and that we received, but living in light of that reconciliation by going into the world and being ministers of reconciliation, which means, you know what? You have to reconcile with people. How are you going to proclaim reconciliation if you continue to live unreconciled with brothers and sisters in Christ? You have to live reconciled to God. How can you claim that Jesus has reconciled me to himself, died for my sin, and then scorn his sacrifice by living however you please? In Christ, 
you are reconciled to God. So be reconciled. Father, I pray now that you would let us see your beauty. Lord, we know that we're sinners. We confess our sin to you, God. But Lord, I'm so struck by in scripture, people are made aware of their sin, not by rubbing their noses in it, but by looking at your holiness. Isaiah saw your glory and he saw his sin more clear than ever. Peter saw your beauty and he recognized that he was undeserving of your presence. God, we know the sin in our lives. I pray that in a vision of your beauty and a vision of your glory, that you would let us see your holiness now. At the foot of the cross, as we see righteousness sacrificed for sinners. At the foot of the cross, when we see your perfect holiness suffering the penalty for our sin. God, that we would finally see the weight of our sin the way you see it. And that in your grace, we would repent, we would turn. We would confess our sin, turn from our sin, and receive the reconciliation that you provide in your son. Lord, may we do business with you now. Rejoice in you now. Be reconciled to you now so that we can leave this place knowing that your judgment over us is that we are yours, that you've made us righteous. In Jesus' name.